the Winnipeg Foundation invited Winnipeggers to share their visions for Winnipeg's next 100 years and the potential role philanthropy might play. This is our next 100. Today we'll hear from Dr. Tyler Pierce, Executive Director of Local Investment Toward Employment. So today we live in a society that feels comfortable helping children, but not necessarily parents. Feels comfortable giving out bag lunches, but not providing a parent with gift cards or the opportunity to earn income in a very non-standard job to purchase food for the children themselves. We're also very comfortable with paying foster parents but not topping up social assistance or providing a minimum income to everyone. And the common denominator here is a distrust of the very people we say we want to help. Moms, parents, families. And really it's indigenous moms and brown dads and poor families. Dr. Tyler Pierce is the executive director of Local Investment Toward Employment, also known as LIGHT which creates 400 plus job experiences a year for people held back from participating in the labor market by social or economic circumstances. She also works to support community economic development through social enterprise development. She holds a PhD in economic geography. Here is Dr. Tyler Pierce. Beautiful and surprising things appear when people are placed in the center and play a deep role in shaping the places they live, work, and love. In Winnipeg, thanks to a generation of Indigenous leaders, allies, and social activists, we've been gifted the Nietzsche principles of community economic development, also known as CED. These are a list of interwoven values that center human dignity and practices that support, among other things, employment, skill development, and building local economies. These principles form the DNA of many community-based organizations that together and walking alongside one another seek to create economies of care and healing in response to intergenerational poverty, the legacies of residential schools and colonialism, and the structural inequities in our city. Training and employment, and increasingly self-employment, are a big part of economic and development parts of CED. But ironically, today's CED approaches, which aim to give people the tools to get out of poverty, are becoming ineffective because of the all-encompassing and overwhelming burden of poverty. For example, a woman with young children who accesses social assistance and wishes to enroll in healing or pre-employment programs can be stymied by her monthly budget gap. How does one focus on healing or upgrading when they are needing to find a way to feed themselves? There are ways of closing that gap, accessing more than one hamper program, for example. And there are also less pleasant ways, but mostly they involve people putting themselves in danger. The organization I lead, Local Investment Toward Employment, is increasingly offering what we call harm reduction jobs, or what we've actually renamed recently springboard jobs, just because we think springboard jobs is a lot less stigmatizing than harm reduction jobs can kind of be read by folks. So springboard jobs allow people to just show up, make a product, and earn money right then and there. 
these jobs offer very low barrier access to income that can help participants solve budget gaps. This is helpful, but it'd be better if we didn't force people to make up that gap in the first place. Our ability to offer springboard jobs is wholly dependent on donors. And too often, the imagined needs by philanthropists predetermine what programs are offered in communities like ours, low-income communities. So I had a conversation with a philanthropist, and she told me, we really want to provide children with a good meal after I pitch support for springboard jobs. And in no doubt, children do need meals. Parents, particularly single parents, and those with two or more young children struggle to put enough on the table. But for parents worried about the gap between paying rent, hydro, or food, a gap that carries the risk of having their kids taken away by child welfare, a nice meal ends up being just a nice meal. It's not problem solving. Income is what makes it possible for parents to focus on learning and life skills. So today, we live in a society that feels comfortable helping children, but not necessarily parents. Feels comfortable giving out bagged lunches, but not providing a parent with gift cards or the opportunity to earn income in a very non-standard job to purchase food for their children themselves. We're also very comfortable with paying foster parents, but not topping up social assistance or providing a minimum income to everyone. And the common denominator here is a distrust of the very people we say we want to help. Moms, parents, families. And really it's indigenous moms and brown dads and poor families. So when donors insist on helping in ways that those living and working in community-based programs don't propose, donors are using their power to keep families from having the chance to get out of poverty. And I think today too many charities are too polite kind of too afraid to say boo to that. Many have simply given up asking for charitable contributions that would allow them to impact something beyond a passing moment. In the next 100 years, I do dream of a philanthropy that is so infused with the values and ways of working developed by the Nietzsche principles that Winnipeggers could hardly understand what philanthropy looks like without them. And I think we have a long way to go. My name is Tyler Pierce, and that is my vision for Winnipeg's next 100 years. Thanks, Tyler. You begin your essay by talking about the Nietzsche principles of community economic development, which were developed by the Indigenous worker cooperative Nietzsche Foods, later known as Nietzsche Commons. What could settler philanthropy specifically learn from these values? I love this question and I want to give context before answering. So as I say in my essay, you know, there are probably 20 organizations, if not more, across Winnipeg Inner City that are influenced and have adopted the Nietzsche principles. And the Nietzsche principles at its base is a challenge and rebuttal of a charitable model that comes from the 19th century. And within that charitable model, I'll just give a quick review of it. I could talk for an hour about it, but I'll, I'll give a quick review, was where there was a real hierarchical difference between 
um, those who give and those who receive that was completely um, raced and classed and in our context was also all about colonialism. So that it was, you know, white, very wealthy middle-class women who didn't have to work, who could therefore run charities, um, giving to, you know, any of the sort of quote unquote deserving poor. And so within that sort of universe, that kind of model, that 19th century model, there's a whole bunch of ideas that perpetuate injustices. Um, and they do so to this day. And so the Nietzsche principles are so important for light as an organization, as well as I said, probably 20 to 30 organizations, because they, they really challenge that, that starting point and that end point. And it's just a different model. It's kind of like we reject that kind of model. And that model is really, you know, becoming, as again, I say in the, in the essay, becoming, coming back, having a, a having a, a, being, being supported by government, current government policy. Um, so when we see policies that, for example, don't provide funding for staff, um, that expect um, almost everyone to be involved to be on a volunteer basis, that in itself already um, supports a kind of settler philanthropy such that the people who are being helped can no longer be the people who are, 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 are giving the help, right? Like if you can't afford uh, to have time and energy and the resources to volunteer and to give, then, then, then all of a sudden you're excluded by that kind of model. I think it's really important to name um, the colonial basis of so much of how we think about charity, um, because what the Nietzsche principles do is they say, that is unacceptable. It's kind of like um, no, you know, you know, no going forward without us, you know, no, no things that are like, it has to be from the community and it has to contain community voices. I think the other thing that I would say, because Light is a non-Indigenous organization, we were formed, as I say in the piece, um, by a whole community of Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. Um, but it, from the get-go, we were informed by these principles. And to me, I think it's really important to not erase that that source because if we think about contemporary colonialism as it exists in right now in 2021 um, one of the things that continually happens is erasure of the contribution and knowledge base of indigenous people right here and so i think um that is one thing that i think you know quote unquote settler um philanthropy should learn is that or, or needs to know and learn and and recognize and name it's that is that the charitable sector in winnipeg and in manitoba uh has a long history of leaders and contributions from people who are indigenous um and are otherwise kind of forgotten in in a lot of historical accounts of the building of our province and that making of a relationship between indigenous and non-indigenous people. Uh, so I think that's the other thing that those principles have for just, again, thinking critically about charity and definitely thinking critically and recognizing the ways that settler 
philanthropy can just easily um, and you know sort of under the radar and not being named go forward. Later on, you discuss the disconnect that can occur between a donor's good intentions versus the actual impact. So how can we as a community or as individuals address the gap between good intention solutions and problem solving solutions? Yeah, I really believe that good intentions are a great starting point, right? Um, but they can't be an endpoint because nobody knows everything. <laughs> And if you're not from a community or you haven't directly experienced something, then your knowledge base of it, you know, is going to be limited. Um, and that, that, um, that to me is just like, that's, that's the answer. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think about, you know, that conversation I had with this would-be philanthropist and I totally think she was totally, you know, wanting to do something meaningful and important. And so I treasure that, right? Like I think I, I don't want to imply that that's not a good intention. And indeed we need in our communities across Winnipeg programs that feed children who otherwise wouldn't have food. But the fact of the matter is there are lots of those programs out there. Some of those programs are supported by government funding. And so they might be like embedded in school programs and things like that. Um, but there are just so few opportunities if you're in a certain area out really stuck outside and marginalized by the labor market. Like it's just really hard to get in to the labor market if you're in a particular circumstance. Um, but it's also like there are just so few opportunities. Um, and, you know, I think that we really need to push back on donors around sort of sometimes it's not even like um, intentional um, prejudices or intentional biases that they're bringing to the table. Like, oh, I want to care about families. I want to care about kids. But it's like, well, the real gap here is that we're in a situation in our province where we know that of the 10,000 Indigenous kids in care, quote unquote care, um, so many of them are, are in care because their parents are in poverty. And that is an injustice. And so, so is it that we need to make sure the kids are fed? Well, of course, the kids need to be fed. But how the kids get fed is what we really need to take a critical look at. So, um, and I think that, you know, again, you can see that if we go back to the Nietzsche principles, one is around human dignity, right? And it's like, there's something to be said about the human dignity of a parent being able to choose and pick out the food that they're going to feed their child. Um, and particularly in a situation where being impoverished is... Uh, basically a major danger to get your children taken away. Um, when we want to help children have meals, we just have to help the parents be able to find the income. Like, it's just like, those are actually the endpoints there are the same. Um, but when a parent is impoverished and kept impoverished, then they are so at risk of losing their child. And that just has catastrophic uh, 
results across generations, as we know. So I, I think the answer to your question is we have to listen to communities. We have to listen to social scientists and we have to be able, I mean, it is incumbent on charities to explain why, right? So, um, but sometimes, you know, honestly, and my frustration and in, in sharing that conversation was sometimes it doesn't matter, right? Like, and I think that's where we need to do a lot of work of like intentions are, are kind, there's a purity to intentions that are so beautiful, um, but we do have to question, you know, what happens and how the money travels. I often use the example, um, Light for uh, the last 30 years has been doing a hamper program. Our hamper program is very different than kind of a standard hamper. So standard hamper, people go to their cupboard. Sometimes they take things from the back of the cupboard that they just haven't eaten, so they're getting rid of. But sometimes they just, you know, take all the soups or whatever and, and bring it to work and put it in a box. And then it goes to some, you know, quote unquote, eating family. That's beautiful. In many ways, hamper programs all hamper programs are beautiful. They're intended to feed people, particularly at a time when you know it's a festive season and and not having food can just and not having a good meal at that time can even be even more painful because of that context. Um, but what our ham where our hamper is different is we said you know what like there's an opportunity here to create employment, and so by buying things from the inner city. Or engaging nonprofits or local businesses to buy the things that go in the hamper, we can not only provide a hamper, but also employment. So it's like getting people to really think through the way those dollars travel and all the impact can be accumulated is upon us as a charitable sector to explain. I think the difficulty and the other difficult conversation we have to have with donors is that you know, for, and, and I'll speak of my neighbors, my neighbor charitable organizations who run frontline organizations, um, you know, they have people coming in every single day who have no food or like who need diapers or need some kind of emergency thing. And so many of these organizations have just taken to just accepting people to bring down to our area of town, all these goods that indeed people need. So it's really hard to get out of this like poverty cycle, right? Where it's like, you know what? We would be better off as a community if we had stores that were selling these things, which means that people would have jobs and therefore people could pay for themselves. You know, like, so interrupting the poverty cycle is really actually very difficult. Um, and, and I think um, the other conversation, which is implied in my piece is that we have to be willing as a charitable sector to kind of say no um, to some of those donor intentions, right? Or, or you know, oh, I want to, you know, give X, Y, and Z for you to contribute. Well, sometimes we might want to say, well, actually, it'd be better, you know, I'd rather give you give me um, fabric that I could then pay someone to make something with that we can sell because that's creating that economic um, cycle versus you just giving me the bags and I just give them away, you know, um, and, and one we easily recognize as charitable and the other we sometimes don't. So we need to kind of push back as well. Awesome. That was a great answer. Uh, so thank you so much, Tyler, for sharing your vision with us today. Thank you.
Our Next 100 is a series of essays envisioning Winnipeg's next 100 years, contributed by Winnipeggers and curated by the Winnipeg Foundation. If you would like to read more essays from Our Next 100, or listen to this episode again as a podcast, please visit wpgfdn.org slash next100. Thanks for listening. Thank you.